Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God, Amen. I want uh, to go back to earlier in the day, in the third hour, we, um, in the Gospel of St. John, we read about our Lord Jesus Christ when he was um, delivered from the Jewish authorities into the hands of Pilate and was sent to the Praetorium, the, the official residence of the governor of Rome uh, or of the, this area of Judea. And I just want to read um, that passage before we begin our uh, reflection together this afternoon. So then Pilate took Jesus and scourged him, and the soldiers twisted a crown of thorns and put it on his head, and they put on him a purple robe. Then they said, Hail, King of the Jews, and they struck him with their hands. Pilate then went again and said to them, Behold, I am bringing you out. I am bringing him out to you that you may know that I find no fault in him. Then Jesus came out wearing the crown of thorns and the purple robe. And Pilate said to them, Behold the man. Therefore, when the chief priests and officers saw him, they cried out saying, Crucify him, crucify him. Pilate said to them, You take him and crucify him, for I find no fault in him. This expression that I placed up on the screen Behold the man is a, is a mysterious kind of expression that, that uh, Pilate uses. The, um, the pictures that I placed there, one is an Orthodox icon, which uh, I think when you look at the eyes of Christ, um, speak volumes of the severity of, uh, and the gravity of the evil that he is facing. And the other image is actually a life-sized um, statue that I saw at a church in Rome many years ago, one of these small churches that we just happened to enter off of the street, and I was walking into the church, and off to the left side of the church, there was this life-size statue of Behold the Man, in, in Latin, it's Ecce Omo, and uh, I remember when I saw it, I was taken aback because of just how um, intense the uh, the image of Christ's faces and the uh, just even the uh, the image of the background and the, um, the the greens that are at his feet. I always kept that picture and uh, pulled it up for the homily this afternoon after five or six years ago. I don't know when I when I remember taking it, but um, behold the man, a mysterious expression that Pilate uses. What does it mean, behold the man? What does Pilate mean by it? One of the uh, Russian saints, his name is Dmitry of Rostov, he says, it was as if Pilate said, look on your king who has not even the appearance of a man, but is rather all torn, bloodied, all in wounds. From feet to head, there is no wholeness in him. Know this and cease your fury. Should I not release for you him who is already sufficiently tortured? In other words, he understands these words to mean, at least in the mind of Pilate, behold the one who has been reduced to less than a man. Behold the one who is no longer the appearance of a man. Behold the one whom your hatred has unleashed. All of the injustices and all of the tortures that make him unrecognizable as a man. Echi omo, and in Latin, it's actually, there's no, um, there's no the. So it's literally, behold man. 
disabled man. And perhaps Pilate, after having him flogged and beaten and having him mocked and uh, the crown of thorns and the purple robe and displayed him in front of the crowd, perhaps Pilate thought he had played a winning card with the crowd. Perhaps he thought, I have reduced this man to such a despicable uh, image in front of them that certainly it will be enough for them. Certainly they will not want more. But somehow the religious people, the people of God, the ones who should have had some mercy and compassion even on an enemy, their hatred is unsatiated. And we want just to think together what, what this behold the man means to us. How can we understand it if we try to look a little deeper? Behold the man, behold, behold all of the evils of humanity. Behold what mankind has been reduced to, to do such a thing. Behold death and desolation and decay and violence and disorder. Behold it. This is the fruit of it. Behold what life looks like when one rebels against God, when one turns away from God. This is the outcome. Behold what ungodly, worldly power looks like. Behold what ruthless rulers do when they act apart from the fear of God. Look at humanity. Behold man. Behold humanity. Behold the evils of humanity. Behold wickedness and evil personified in this image. And the image of, of, of Christ, the man who has been reduced to less than a man, is a judgment on our humanity. It's a judgment on our inability to solve the inherent problem within us. No technology, no um, human advancement in any of the fields that we advance in, none of those things have saved man. None of those things have saved man from himself but man continues to have evil within him. St. Gregory of Nyssa, echoing what all of our fathers have really said about this over the ages, he says, it is as though those who through transgression acquired sin and introduced illness, speaking about our first parents, they introduced illness. And he says, it had woven evil into our substance. Nature wishes that each species of animal perpetuate itself by transmitting its hereditary to its, its heredity, heredity to its young. Likewise, men are born from men and take in, birth, take in birth the deficiencies of men. In other words, the problem of sin, the problem of evil, the problem of, of um, turning away from God, the problem of rebellion is something that has infected all of us. And it's something that goes to the very core 
of our humanity. And the proof of it is the image of Christ crucified. The, image, the, the, the proof of it is the, the ecchi omo, the behold the man. Behold what you are capable of apart from a savior. Behold the man, behold the disfigurement of each one of us and what sin does to us. Behold man. It's as if there's a, a, a mirror that's placed in front of each person. We can imagine, and there are some wonderful artistic renderings of the Echi Omo throughout, um, especially the Middle Ages, where the, uh, the picture is taken from behind the platform where Pilate is presenting Christ to the crowd below and the artist is depicting the image from behind. And there's sort of this presentation. Pilate brings him out and presents him and displays him in front of the people and says, behold, behold man, behold the man. And we can, in, in those images, Christ is downcast, his face is, is facing down, he's silent, but he's also glancing up at each person in the crowd. And he is communicating to every soul, not just those that are present, but each one of us too, who are in his eternal mind and heart. And he is in a sense saying to each one of us, this is sin. What you see in me, this disfigurement, is what sin does to your soul. As you look at me, remember that this is you from the interior. And that's why St. Paul says, for he made him who knew no sin, but to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. He made him who knew no sin to be sin. Again, it's one of these verses that so many commentators really struggle to really articulate exactly what St. Paul is meaning in this. But certainly, maybe words aren't sufficient. Maybe we just need to look at, behold the man, and say, he who knew no sin became sin. Each one of us that he looks at and peers into our hearts and says, your sin is this ugly. And all of the collective sins of, of the world, past, present, and future, the result of it is this disfigurement of humanity and what we have done to God. That, that we don't even recognize our own creator we don't even recognize our benefactor, the one who wills us good, the one who does us good, the one who, who seeks our good, we turn against and we crucify him. So behold the man, behold you and me. Behold the sin which is in you and which is in me. Behold that sin reflected in the man who has been reduced to less than a man. As one nun said so beautifully, she says, we read our judgment in your face. We read our judgment in your face. That's why I, 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 I want this, these pictures to remain during my homily. Just as we, we look at the icon of the crucifixion and 
our judgment is red in your face. And this disfigurement is actually a great light. The streams of blood coming from the crown of thorns on his face, the sorrow that is consuming his soul, uh, the weakness of his body is a great light because Christ came as a light to bring judgment, to expose. Those who are willing to look and receive the light can be healed. But those who turn away from the light remain in darkness. So the light is not, as we will see in a moment, simply the light of Tabor, but it is the light of the cross. It is the light of the Echi Omo. It is the light of Behold the Man. We read our judgment in your face. Behold the man. Behold the Father's love in this man. Behold the great love which has gone to the ends of the earth in search of every lost sheep. Behold the wounds of love. On uh, Palm Sunday, I began with the verse, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. And the very, very beautifully, if we look at this expression, to the end in the Greek, it literally means he loved them to perfection. He loved them to the uttermost. He loved them to the abyss. He loved them to the point in which it, there is no further point of love. It doesn't mean simply that he loved them to the end of his life. No, it means that his love went to the furthest extremes. St. Augustine says, though he is the Almighty, the Pantocrator, he was unable to do more. As we say in a modern expression, what? He left it all on the line. He loved them to the end. He loved them to the uttermost, to the perfection, to the abyss. And in love, he exhausted all the possibilities for humanity. Humanity cannot contain more. Humanity is not capable of receiving more love from God as reflected in the image of Christ, behold the man. As one father uh, very beautifully said, he says, a love to the end is responded to with a refusal to the end. A love to the end is responded to with a refusal to the end, but only the end of love is endless. But only the end of love is endless. And in a sort of um, paradox that takes place in front of Pilate and in front of the, uh, his court, there is this dialogue about, are you a king? And Christ says very little, but but he says enough to point out that his kingdom is not the kind of kingdom that you and others are seeking. It's not the kind of kingdom that you as, as humans strive after and, and seek. But my kingdom is a kingdom of love, an eternal kingdom that is not of this world. And so as they mock him as king, they don't realize that what they are doing is that they are giving him a greater opportunity and platform to prove what kind of king he is. 
Again, evil does not have the power to destroy love. In fact, the more the forces of evil try to quench Christ's love, the more they make it emerge and stand out. The more they try to suffocate that kingship of love, the more he responds with greater love. The more they hurl themselves against him to eliminate him, destroy him, the more they will give him a greater opportunity to prove, in fact, that he is truly the king that he says he is. Behold the man who shows us the Father's love. Behold the man who shows us what divine glory is in that disfigured face and body of the crucified. One bishop wrote very beautifully, he said, God is indeed difficult. You seek him and he hides himself. Heaven and earth, we say, are full of his glory, yet he cannot be discerned. You approach him and he distances himself, but he is also easy. He is easy and he is difficult. Perhaps we seek and approach him in human ways. We want to humanize him, to subject him to human nature without realizing it. Again, when you encounter him, although you are the one who is seeking him, you realize that it is he who is pursuing you. You do not discover him. He reveals himself to you. If we take two icons, the icon of Calvary, Golgotha, and let's say we superimpose it on another icon, the icon of the Transfiguration. we find something very interesting and very beautiful that takes place. Now imagine, again, you're superimposing these two icons on, on one another. You have on Tabor, you have Christ's face who is altered, it's, whose face is altered. His face becomes what? Like the sun. And on the cross, his face is altered, but he becomes that less than a man. On Mount Tabor, he appeared in, 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 the, in the glory of light. And on Calvary, he appeared in weakness and the earth was darkened. And Tabor, he was with two witnesses, Moses and Elijah. And on Calvary, two witnesses, the two thieves. On Mount Tabor, there was a voice that was heard saying, this is my beloved son. And on Calvary, the cry of the son saying, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Very interesting if you put them together. It's as, if, it's as if Christ, by being transfigured earlier, was telling his disciples and telling us they're the same reality. One is just hidden behind the other. They're hidden because we're looking with our human eyes, as the bishop said. But with faith, we see that they're the same reality. One is just hidden from the other. Strength is hidden behind the weakness. Glory is hidden behind the humiliation. 
presence of God is hidden behind this concealment. Renewal of humanity is hidden behind the destruction of the man. The transfiguration is hidden behind the pain and the suffering. And ultimately, the life is hidden within the very death of Christ. And this makes sense now when we go back to what Isaiah said in one of the prophecies, one of the uh, major prophecies of the Passion. He had no beauty or majesty that would cause us to look at him. Nothing in his appearance would attract us to him. Think about that. The suffering servant, the Messiah, God in the flesh, had no beauty or majesty that would cause us to look at him. Nothing in his appearance would attract us to him. And yet he was God. And yet he was life. And yet he was light. And yet he was salvation. And yet he was man's joy and happiness. But we turned our face from the ugliness of the cross. Sister Ruth Burroughs says very beautifully, she says, God comes to us in the lowly man of Nazareth. And what does not flatter our pride but humbles it to the dust? Isaiah graphically described the perennial truth that men turn away in revulsion from the face of God revealed in his suffering servant. When we come to the spiritual life, as often as not, we are wanting what we are wanting is that which will make us feel good. But this does not happen. On the contrary, we are likely to feel even less colorful than before. Can we take this? If we have faith, we are not disappointed nor deceived. We recognize the treasure in the dross because we know God is faithful and never disappoints. We are able to recognize the face of God in the marred face of Jesus. If we change the logic from human logic to divine logic, if we change the vision from a human vision to the vision of faith, then as Sister Ruth Burroughs says, we are able to recognize the face of God in the marred, disfigured, broken face of Christ. God is not manifesting to us his glory in thunderbolts and lightning and displays of power, but he displays it in the cross. He turned upside down all the structures of life, all of the wisdom of the world, all of the worldly powers, everything that is instinctual to our fallen human nature, He's made a mockery of it, and he has the last word. Behold the man, the glory of God the Father. Behold the man, our brother, our friend, our companion. In an interesting kind of sequence of events that we saw in this week, we see that Christ in Gethsemane experienced experienced anguish and there he he makes himself in solidarity with all of our human anguish and his trials this morning beginning with last night and this morning we see that he endured misunderstandings slander and exploitations things that we all encounter as humans in the scourging he experienced the utmost of human pain all of us at some point or another are subject to human pain and illness. 
all the way, all the, all the way on, on, on the way to the cross, he is entering into the depths of the abyss of everything that we dislike of our humanity. One father wrote, to betray, to deny, to abandon, to condemn are the four fundamental verbs in the distortion of human relationships. To betray, to deny, to abandon, to condemn. And he says in these four verbs, all of the distortions of our relationships can be summed up. And he includes in the list what he calls misunderstandings and suspicions, incommunicability, dampening of sentiments, indifferences, falseness, falseness of heart, mistrust, gossip, accusations, manipulations, rejections, insults, slanders, hatreds, and homicides. He says Jesus assumes and shares with love all of these human experiences through his betrayal, denial, abandonment, and condemnation so that any human being who faces them can encounter him there, present in that abyss. Even more powerfully, this priest says, love has taken Jesus to the bleakest possible state in human experience. No human being can find himself in a worse situation, physical pain, and worse still, solitude and abandonment. It is almost nullification. Even the Father seems to have disappeared. The divine light appears to have gone out. Jesus touches that kind of reduction to nothing that every human being must experience when he consciously brushes up against death. Jesus stands in man's abyss, and there he lingers, so that no man, even as he falls into it, feels alone. Having descended to the very bottom, nothing of the human experience remains unknown to him. No one understands human life as he does. Only he knows the mystery. Having entered it out of love to be one with all humanity, he introduces a new vital energy which cannot be suffocated. He enters into that abyss and he lingers there, but he infuses it for us with a new energy that will never be suffocated. And as one rightly asked, what could we have done with a God who would have taken himself down from his cross when we cannot leave our crosses and must carry them until we die? It's a very interesting question. How could we accept a God who would have responded to the cries of the people? You who opened the eyes of the blind, you who performed so many miracles, come down from the cross. We have no such need of a God. We want a God who, like us, carries the cross all the way to the end. And then finally, behold the man. And let me just end with the, the focus here on behold. 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 Fix your gaze on the man. Look at the man. St. John ends we started with St. John's um, Gospel, but he ends the Passion narrative with this final word. And again, another scripture says, and he quotes from the Old Testament, they shall look on him whom they pierced. That's the conclusion of the Passion narrative for St. John. They shall look on him. They shall behold him whom they pierced. 
Now, if we, again, let's say, go back to our prayers and the Psalms, you find these beautiful expressions. My eyes are ever looking to the Lord. Or in Psalm 26, For you are he to whom my heart said, I have sought your face. Your face, O Lord, I will seek. To be able to see, to behold, to look at the face of God. This is where our happiness and our joy comes from. When Christ was walking through the streets, there was a blind man named Bartimaeus who began shouting when he heard that Jesus was passing through, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. And they told him to be quiet, but he yelled even more, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on me. So Jesus called for him. And he asked him, what would you like me to do for you? And very simply, he said, Lord, that I might see. What is it that we want God for, to do for us today? Lord, that I might see, that I might behold, that I might look on your face all the days of my life. When Moses was on Sinai, he said to the Lord, please show me your glory. And God answered him saying, you shall see my back, but my face you shall not see. You cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. But then Pilate says to us, behold, look, see the face of God. And St. Paul said in his epistle to the Corinthians, For the God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has enabled his light to shine in our hearts in order to enlighten them with the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. The glory that Moses wished to see and was denied. St. Paul says, the God who called light out of darkness has enabled, has finally said yes to humanity to see the face of God, to see his glory. But it is in the face of Jesus Christ. So uh, let me end with uh, something I, I heard from one of the spiritual fathers um, who said in one of his talks that the grace of Holy Week is enough to sustain us for the whole year. The grace that we receive during this week of, of Holy Week, he says, if we, if, we, if we really behold and drink from it, is enough to sustain us for the rest of the year. So if by beholding the face of God during this one week, we receive such a grace, why not behold his face every day, every hour, why not, like David, turn to him and say, my eyes are ever looking for the Lord. My eyes are ever looking to the Lord. Or, for you are he to whom my heart said, I have sought your face, your face, O Lord, I will seek. We don't need tears of compassion, as uh, some of our uh, beautiful sermons reminded us of this week. We don't need tears of compassion for Christ. They are useless without tears of repentance. 
when we behold the face of Christ, when we behold the face of God and the person of Jesus Christ, what he wants from us are tears that change our lives. He wants that his passion that we behold not be a sort of just a human affection. Oh, look at the poor guy, like Pilate said, behold the man who has been reduced to less than a man. But that we might see the disfigurement of sin, that we might see the love of God, that we might see the glory of God, that we might see, see the companionship, friendship of God, and that we might see what our calling is as Christians every day to seek his face. Finally, one person wrote, love and the refusal of love are the two realities that collide on Calvary. That's it. Love and the refusal of love. So this is the question for us. Which side are we on? And glory be to him forever. Amen.